Hello and welcome back to the podcast where we prod the sheep and beat the wolf. This is a new series called A Practical Postmillennialism. This is episode one. The Roadmap for Our Series. Now, before you delve into the juicy contents of any book, you should encounter a table of contents that provides a roadmap for where you're heading. Now, if I were to present to you a table of contents or a roadmap for this new series, I would divide it into three distinct sections. In section one, which we're going to begin today, I would aim to defeat the defeatism that is alive and well in Christianity today. I intend to show you how an expectation of defeat has actually crept into the modern church, making us morbidly discouraged. I also plan to demonstrate how this defeatism has crippled the modern American church and individual Christians, preventing them from joyfully engaging in the mission that Jesus has given us. Additionally, I want to expose how it has produced a generation of curmudgeonly, disillusioned Christian isolationists who are disengaged from culture and ever hopeful on being raptured out of here. Now, in section one, which is today, we're, we're going to strive to conquer this pernicious canker sore called defeatism by examining it in its three manifestations. Now, this week, we're going to explore how dispensationalism, which is an eschatological doctrine, we'll get into it in a moment, don't worry, has contributed to this disease. Then in weeks two and three, we're going to conclude this section by observing how historic premillennialism, which is better, and amillennialism, which is even better, have in some ways, even though much less, also fostered an expectation of pessimism and defeat in the modern church. And it needs to be repented of if we're going to move forward and build Christendom in our generation. Now, in section two, after we move past the defeatism category, I want to present a biblical case for optimism. And what I mean by optimism is I mean that that we can have an optimistic view of the world as being, instead of being engulfed in flames, ready to collapse on a moment's notice, I want us to see how the Bible actually anticipates Jesus's worldwide universal victory. I want us to see how Jesus is going to claim all the nations, that his reign is going to be unopposed, that he's going to bring his kingdom of peace over the entire earth as the water covers the sea before this old world concludes. And then in section three, after demonstrating the Bible's optimism about all of these things, well, I want us to do something that I have personally not seen done before. I want us to apply the concept of postmillennialism to every aspect of our lives. I want us to answer questions like, what does it mean for me that Jesus reigns, that he is achieving a total and complete victory? How will my king's victory impact my manhood, my parenting? How, how is my being a dad going to align with his victory as a part of the winning team? How is our womanhood, our mothering, our marriages, our church participation, our community transformation, our evangelism, discipleship, our vocation, our finances, all of it? How is it going to support the unfolding victory of Jesus Christ? 
And after exploring all of this, it's my hope that you will leave this series invigorated, no longer expecting the worst, but working for the best, anticipating the growth of Jesus's kingdom in our lifetime and engaged in that mission with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. My goal is simple. When we defeat the disgusting idol of defeatism that has captivated Jesus's church for far too long, and when we embrace the Bible's call for optimism about our future, about our king, about his victory, then the Christian church will stop feeling so powerless. She will cease being angered by the negativity porn that's all over the news, and she will discard the kind of pessimism that keeps her secluded and hiding in her churches, disengaged from culture, reluctant to be the salt and light of the world. Instead, she will stand up boldly and confidently, bringing all of Christ to all the world. That is my goal. Defeating defeatism. Now, within the diverse landscape of Christian theology, few theological systems have sparked as much debate and reflection as dispensationalism. This theological system, with its distinct method of interpreting the end times events in the Bible and understanding God's role in human history, has not only shaped legions of modern Christians, but it's also spoiled many people within the evangelical fold. And by that, I don't mean a good thing. Unfortunately, this is true whether you realize it or not. I mean, you don't know, you don't need to know what dispensationalism actually is or to be an expert on these things to, to have drank the Kool-Aid. It is everywhere. It is ubiquitous. It is much the same way that you cannot detect micropollutants in the air when you breathe. Well, so many in the church have been toxified by this 200-year-old view that has seeped its way into everything. In eschatological studies, which just means the discipline that examines the last days and the end times, that's what eschatology is, is studying the end times, dispensationalism has become the aerosol poison that has leaked into the ventilation system of the church, infecting everything. From its obscure beginnings to its majority status within the American church, it is hard to avoid it and has caught many uninformed captives in its gloomy, melancholy nets. The result of its incredible spread has not been a strong and vigorous church ready to, to attack the day, seize the day, uh, bring the gospel to the nations, disciple the nations according to the what Jesus told us in his in Matthew 28. No, it's it's instead produced a sickly, defeated, and lazy church that's unwilling to build anything, unwilling to share the gospel to anyone. This dumpster fire of a doctrine that we're going to be looking at today. I don't care if you get offended by that, honestly. That dumpster fire of a doctrine is what we're going to be looking at today. But before we begin, I have to admit that this topic deserves an entire book. It's This is especially true when you consider all of the biblical texts that this viewpoint has mangled over the years. All of the failed predictions, all of the laughable, silly things that has come out of this doctrine. It deserves an entire book, maybe even a series of books. But today, we're just going to barely be able to delve into the murky waters perhaps maybe only even staining the smallest little pinky toe in those murky waters by examining today its history, its roots, dissecting its core tenets, addressing its addiction to hyperliteralism, its rigid futurism, and how it gives birth to rampant defeatism. Today, I want to show you how 
this has happened and how this viewpoint has successfully immobilized the modern church. It stymied her mission and it's caused the world to rapidly decay all around us. Now, if that's your jam, then buckle up and let's get started. Dispensational definitions. What is dispensationalism? Well, dispensationalism is a theological system that divides human history into seven unique eras of history. And and in those eras of history, God interacts uniquely and unrepeatably with man according to whichever era that man belongs. So if you live in Noah's era, God deals with you in one way. Well, if you live in Old Testament Israel, God deals with you another way. The New Testament church, it's still a different way. These divisions in history are hard divisions, which are called dispensations, which is where we get the term. Now, let me give you an example of this. Imagine history as a grand play that was written and directed by God. As you know, most plays, at least if they're good, advance a single unified story from the beginning to the end. The beginning sets up the story, the middle builds and crescendos to some sort of climax, and then the climax and resolution happens, and then the story ends. The characters go through various ups and downs in the narrative. They are, they're twists and plot turns in every story, but overall, every element of every play, and again, at least the ones that are worth their salt, advances a single unified story from the beginning to the end. But this is not the case in the dispensational worldview. According to dispensationalism, God has divided the world into seven microdramas or seven disjointed and fragmented chapters where God is doing unique things that do not contribute to the overall unified story, at least not in any meaningful way. These seven dispensations are like seven chapters from seven different books taped and pasted together and you expecting to get something out of it when you read it. These seven dispensations of time are meant to highlight the disunity and the discontinuity within the redemptive historical story. And they're not meant to highlight the overall unity that the Bible actually describes. A brief history of dispensationalism. Now, to understand the rise of dispensationalism, we don't need to go back to the New Testament era or the ancient and apostolic church. We'd, we don't even need to go back to the Reformation because unlike most theological systems that exist, dispensationalism is relatively new. It's popping up into existence, happened only about 200 years ago in the 19th century England. Now, that fact alone should cause us to be skeptical of this view. Since none of the apostles, none of the original disciples, none of their disciples, nor their disciples' disciples, or anyone in the ancient church actually believed this way, or had even heard of such a ridiculous view. That point alone doesn't make it wrong, but it does present an astronomical burden of proof that dispensationalism unfortunately cannot muster. Now, regarding its origins, a 19th century man named John Nelson Darby who was a theologian and a member of an Anabaptist sect known as the Plymouth Brethren, was the first person to begin codifying these views. Again, 19th century England, John Nelson Darby. The problem, though, was that Darby wasn't just presenting a new idea, but he was actually presenting an entire new paradigm for how to view the Bible and how to view history and how to view God's actions in it. Now, one may reasonably wonder why the Holy Spirit waited 1,700 years to reveal such a fragmented view that would cause the church to basically be paralyzed in defeatism. But notwithstanding all of that and its novelty, Darby had a new vision for how to interpret the scriptures 
that ran afoul of the vast majority of interpretations that had ever been given. According to Darby, he saw the Bible not as one continuous story from the author God, but as a series of distinct chapters, each with its own theme and its own lessons. As we said before, he called these chapters dispensations. Now, this approach was entirely different from the traditional way of understanding the Bible that had been handed down for the first 18 centuries, known as covenant theology. In covenant theology, God mediates a relationship with sinful humanity through successive covenants. These covenants are terms by which God is going to pursue and dwell with sinful man. They come right out of the text, the covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. You get my point. All of these covenants actually also culminate and move forward and point to the new covenant administration that's in Jesus Christ. Now, while covenant theology focuses on the continuity of redemptive history and it's actually demonstrable from the text, well, Darby segmented biblical history, attempting to prove that God had somehow changed his mode of operation with each successive chapter. Soon, those ridiculous ideas, I'm sorry if I'm being dismissive, but they are, they're, they're again, they're not demonstrable from the text. Soon those ideas begin to spread in England and in Europe, and eventually they crossed over the Atlantic where they took hold. Now, as said, Darby's ideas found their most, their most fertile soil in the hyper-individualism and pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps soil of America. It was like planting an old seed in new, highly fertilized soil, which basically just full of manure, where it grew twice as fast and gained a firm footing on these shores. This quick acceptance from the American church and even faster growth within the Americas was primarily thanks to the Schofield Reference Bible, which was published in 1909 and brought Darby's dispensational thinking to the masses. Now, the Schofield Reference Bible, by marrying publishing excellence and marketing genius and, and appealing to Christians who wanted to study their Bible, all that added with dispensational thinking in a single study Bible, well, the average Christian was exposed to Darby for the first time, and they drank it in. This would change the fabric and character of American evangelical theology in this country for more than a century, and it still continues to this day. Now, beyond impacting just the average Christian or the run-of-the-mill evangelical church, prominent 19th century theologians arose during this era who, affected by the system of thinking that they found at home in their Schofield Bibles, grew up and began founding influential institutions like the Moody Bible Institute, which became strong supporters of this new theological framework. You think Dallas Theological Seminary as well. And all of this happened like the wild spread of Japanese kudzu in rural Georgia. America went to bed with the first little sprig of dispensationalism sticking up out of the garden only to wake up for an entire infestation in the generations ahead. Now, it's essential, however, to note that while dispensationalism as a whole is wholly modern, some of the elements of dispensationalism have ancient roots. For instance, historic premillennialism, which we're going to talk about next week, is a very ancient view that Christ is going to reign physically on the earth for a thousand years after the church is raptured out of the world. The world's going to fall into a seven-year tribulation. Christ is going to set up his millennial kingdom, all of that. We're going to talk about that next week. And while I wholeheartedly disagree with that system and with that idea, it actually does go back to the ancient church. 
Now, on the other hand, dispensationalism borrowed some of these ancient premillennial beliefs and combined them with Darby's new way of chopping up the Bible and created a new breed of theology, which, as the cool kids say, is kind of sus. Influence on the modern church. Now, as we delve deeper into dispensationalism, it's crucial to recognize how this once modest theological sapling morphed into a colossal oak tree, casting its pervasive shadow over much of the evangelical landscape. Dispensationalism is more than a legacy of misplaced beliefs that was inherited from past generations. It has actually become an opaque lens that has blinded a significant portion of Jesus' church, confusing her about the world, the church, engaging with culture, how the Bible is interpreted, and what's going to happen in the future. Like a pervasive weed in grandpappy's garden, dispensationalism has entrenched itself within the backyard of modern church thinking, especially in its approach to eschatology and the modern nation state of Israel. Because dispensationalism teaches redemptive history through successive disjointed chapters, Christians are not taught to see themselves living in the climax of human history during the reign of their king, but instead during an asterisk period where God is graciously permitting Gentiles to come to him because his true bride rejected him. It's almost as if the Dispies are saying God took on a temporary girlfriend while waiting for his wife to come back home. This, of course, is preposterous since the Gentiles were grafted into the people of God by the finished work of Christ. The church age is not an asterisk period. The church age is not an allowance that God allowed to happen while the Jews are in rebellion. No, when Jesus died and rose from the grave, he made us into one people out of both Jews and Greek, Galatians 3.28. And that event transformed his church into an entirely Jewish phenomenon, into a into the Israel of God, which is made up of people from all over, every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. Instead of playing around with the church while he's waiting on Israel to return, the Bible describes God as already having Israel in the church. Israel and the church are the same phenomenon in the Bible, made up of Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, which, of course, is all accomplished by the glorious working of his son. Now, despite clear biblical teaching on these things, dispensationalism views the church as nothing more than an add-on era, one of the seven. According to proponents of this view, one day Israel is going to end her rebellion and God is going to revive her again in the future, and he's going to give her a new temple to worship him in, and this, of course, is blasphemy. Since Israel already exists through the manifold people of God on earth, we're not waiting for Israel to come back. Israel's already his. But also, to say that there's going to be a new temple that's going to be built is actual blasphemy. Because the final sacrifice, to end all sacrifices, already happened in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's Hebrews 10, 12. And instead of seeing Jesus as the true temple or as the true sacrifice or as the true high priest, which are all biblical doctrines, dispensational gurus nullify the finished work of Jesus, claiming that the Jews are going to one day trade in everything that Jesus accomplished for a bloodlusting, animal-sacrificing temple. This is like trading in all of the romance and intimacy that is experienced with an actual bride for a faded out Polaroid picture. 
Clearly, this teaching is ludicrous. Now, according to dispensationalists, this messianic-induced return to a mosaic temple is going to be ushered in by a grand and resounding defeat of Jesus' church. Isn't that exciting? So in order to get back to the temple, the church has to crash and burn in fantastic defeat, only adding to the absurdity of this ridiculous position. This view asserts that the church will ultimately fail in her mission to win the world to Christ. Immorality is going to continue growing unchecked and cover the entire world with its glory, apparently. And the church is going to be raptured out of here as lovable losers and an antichrist is going to rise to power in an intergalactic battle in Armageddon where Jesus is going to come in and liquidate all of them. Now, this theological nonsense has spread aggressively through Christendom at the same time that media empires stopped telling feel-good stories. And that's important because things don't happen in a vacuum. Movements don't spread without a context. At the same time, that Fox News, CNN, and other media companies discovered that it was profitable, more profitable, in fact, than telling feel-good stories to pump doom and gloom narratives incessantly into our living rooms and public squares because it sells. Well, at the same time that happened, American theologians and pastors have taken up this addiction to carnality, selling and peddling panic, pessimism, and doom to generations of Christians who've become paralyzed, just like the consumers of cable news. By focusing constantly on how the world is going from bad to worse, a culture of Christians have grown up fantasizing more ardently about a rapture where they're going to leave the world behind in a blaze of glory than actually doing the hard and faithful work of seeing this world conform to the image of Christ. For decades, a left-behind-style abandonment complex has taken hold in the church, looking past the world that we are living in and the work that's called to be done here to escape to a Gnostic-like bodiless heaven. This is like a teenager refusing to clean his room because he knows his mother will eventually burst in and do it for him. In the same way, the church has abandoned the Great Commission from Christ to disciple the nations, hoping or at least betting on the fact that the world is going to one day get so bad that Jesus is fed up with it and he comes back to clean up the mess that we made. Instead of looking at this as a commission that he gave us, empowered by the Spirit, for us to oversee for the good of the world, we've abandoned our calling for escapism. Instead of ardently trying to see the Great Commission accomplished in our lifetime, thinking strategically about how do we evangelize and how do we make disciples and how do we take back land that belongs to Jesus, instead of strategically thinking about these things, dispensationalism has employed an attitude of saving as many people as they can before the ship sinks. This is why mega churches have have carnal concert style worship services because the goal is to save people before Jesus returns, to pull them out of the flames. Don't worry about discipling them. Discipling takes way too long. Who has time for that? And that's why this culture of Christianity, this dispensational cult has produced a multiple generational problem of baby undiscipled Christians who've never been brought up in the faith, never been taught good doctrine, and who basically are perpetually immature waiting on an imminent rapture. And yet the rapture that they're all waiting for hasn't come. Hasn't come after a hundred years of failed predictions. It hasn't come after thousands of ridiculous prophecies, all 
unfulfilled. And it's not going to come in the way that the Dispies are thinking, because that's not what the Bible says. We're going to get into that more later, but it's going to have to wait for future episodes. Now, to paralyze the church with such defeatist propaganda, dispensationalists have leveraged the domain of Christian book publishing companies and entertainment companies who've churned out a litany of volumes that are steeped in this kind of evangelical panic porn eschatology, sensationalizing Bible prophecy that melds current events from the newspaper and now from the tickers on the screen or from your Twitter account into end times failed predictions. Series like Left Behind, The Late Great Planet Earth, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 88 are examples from last generation of how these commercialized ideas take hold in the book publishing companies, making their writers fat and wealthy and leaving a generation of Christians brought up speculating on whether COVID-19 and its vaccine is the mark of the beast. This skewed perspective has tainted the modern church's ability to understand God's faithful work in history, his ongoing mission in the present, and the ultimate trajectory towards a triumphant and glorious future that is coming in Jesus Christ. Dispensationalism is a miracle that it grew because every story that that you and I have ever watched, every movie that that we've been touched by has a glorious end. Why would we think? that the writer of the Bible would take the church and cause its grand and glorious finale to be that it crashes and burns and loses. That sort of thinking has fostered a climate where the headlines in the newspapers are often more important than the scriptures, leading to a frantic obsession with current events like wars in Israel, potential epidemic outbreaks, who is in charge of the who, political geopolitical shifts and power dynamics, all of that deemed as precursors to us getting zapped out of here. In essence, dispensationalism propelled by theologians, pastors, publishing houses, Christian media, all of that has promulgated a fragmented view of the Bible. And is it any wonder since dispensationalism fragments the Bible? It's destroyed our view of Jesus' bride, the church. It has caused a generation to be addicted to panic and pessimism instead of instead of hope and and the gospel. And this has not only diverted the church's attention away from the Great Commission, but it's also ingrained a defeatist mindset within the evangelical world, contradicting the hopeful and transformative message of the gospel, rendering us ineffective for the mission. Now, where did all of this defeatist mentality come from? Is it just a symptom of a few bad dispensationalists, or is it a feature of their entire theological system? Beyond what we've already discussed, which is enough for me to say that the view has failed and no one should believe it, well, but beyond that, I want us to explore a couple additional concepts that make dispensationalism pernicious and ludicrous. Again, much more could be said, but I only want to, in this episode, give you a summary for now. Other failed concepts in dispensationalism. Number one, a commitment to hyperliteralism. Now, along with a fragmented approach to the Bible, a misunderstanding of Israel and the church and a preoccupation with leaving the world instead of discipling it, dispensationalism also has a strict commitment to literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, first blush, this kind of sounds epic, especially in a world constantly challenging the truth and the authority of Scripture. Yet... It's not a healthy view of literal. 
that distinguishes dispensationalism. Instead of interpreting the text literally, they employ a foolish approach that I like to call literalism. For instance, literal means understanding something according to its literature. This means that we may know poetry rightly and literally when we employ the rules and strategies that work best for poetry. You don't read poetry like you read a phone book. You don't read a law book like you look at a comic strip. This, of course, makes perfect sense. And it means that different genres of writing require different interpretive tools in order to understand them literally. Now, let me give you an example. If I said that I am so hungry that I could eat a cow, the literal truth that I'm communicating to you is that I'm starving. I do not intend to communicate that I can literally fit a 2,000-pound beast in a three-ounce stomach. Interpreting my words that way would actually be silly, stupid, and literalistic, which is precisely what dispensationalism does. Regarding scripture, the dispensationalist violates the rules of literature and employs strategies that are needed to extract the most ridiculous meanings. For instance, in the eschatological genre of apocalyptic literature, there's a funny example of this. This is sort of a classic example that I use a lot. Instead of attempting to figure out what locust means in an apocalyptic text and what the Old Testament worldview has to say about that, what the Exodus account actually informs in that, how that has to do with plagues and, and everything in the Bible, instead of trying to dig into the apocalyptic genre, dispensationalism says that the locust are just John's way of describing Apache helicopters because John, he didn't know how to describe an Apache helicopter because he saw his vision about our time period. So he described it with things that he knew. Well, that, that helicopter kind of looks like a locust. And of course, Apache helicopters aren't even in use anymore, but dispensationalism or dispensationalists have said that before. Now, the same is true when Dispy say that the mark of the beast, which is taken on the wrist or on the forehead, must be an implanted microchip that's connected to your bank account so you can buy and sell. Of course, the, the, the meaning of this had nothing to do with John and his audience. It has to apply to us because the Bible is not written for the first 19 centuries. It was written for us. We're the focus. That's sort of the point. You can even give the more ridiculous one that I've seen on Instagram or other memes that the M in the Monster Energy drink is actually the 666 mark of the beast that John is referring to. So don't drink Monster, apparently. This bastardization of the apocalyptic genre produces limitless, whimsical interpretations that are frankly embarrassing for Christianity and can be dreamt up by any crackpot interpreter with a weird imagination, producing work that bears more resemblance to an ayahuasca trip than accurate biblical exegesis. Now, ironically, dispensationalists do not interpret other Bible passages with the same sort of rigid, fantastical literalism. And of course they don't. Why would they? If they did, we would all be removing two by fours from our forehead before we get the sawdust out of someone else's eye. Or we would expect a thousand pound camel to enter through the eye of a needle before any rich man could get into heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. A literal approach to scripture is reasonable and it's necessary so long as we honor the literature to which every text is pulled from. The problem occurs when we adopt literalism making every eschatological text fit into our world instead of from the world to which it was written. 
This method imposes strange and inconsistent rules upon the text, leading to wild and ridiculous conclusions that must be avoided like the bubonic plague. Number two, addiction to futurism. Now, along with a commitment to wild and outlandish literalism, dispensational chaps are more addicted to futurism than lab rats being force-fed cocaine. By futurism, I'm talking about the principle of interpreting the text in a particular time. For instance, in eschatological studies, there's, there's sort of four views on how to interpret end times passages. Those who think the end times passages have a primary spiritual meaning are called idealist. Those who believe that the majority of the passages are going to be worked out sequentially in epics of history are called historists. They don't really exist very much anymore, but that's a historical view. And those who think that most of the eschatological events happened in the past, happened in the time period which with which they were written. Those are called preterist. And then the fourth, there's those who believe that the overwhelming majority of the end times events will not occur until an uncertain future. Those people are called futurists. Instead of reading the scripture in the most appropriate manner, which is tempting to uncover what the original author intended to say to the original first century audience, dispensationalism with its hyper-literalism assumes that the reader of scripture is at the center of biblical interpretation. What I mean by that is that the writers of Scripture, the New Testament, was not written to a specific people about a specific events that were going to happen in their world. That's preterism. Dispensationalists believe that the lion's share of eschatological passages were written to us. They have no application whatsoever to the period to which they were written. They treat Scripture, in fact, as if its writers were writing to us, looking beyond the people who were standing right in front of them, asking questions of them to speak to us. This view is not only wrongheaded, but it prioritizes our generation as the generation that scripture was concerned with, rendering the past 2,000 years of church history a necessary, foregone conclusion that needed to pass away in order to get to us, because 2,000 years of church history could not understand these passages because they weren't written to them. They were written only to us. This is not only arrogant but it's decidedly foolish. Scripture was written to its original audience. By God's grace, it has application to all generations. That is the faithful view. Dispensationalism promotes defeatism. Now, as we come to the point, when you take dispensationalism literally, now no pun intended here, you end up with a worldview suffocating with pessimism, lunacy, and defeatism. When you view biblical history as fragmented, more fragmented, in fact, than a Tarantino movie, then you not only see the eras that we are living in as significant, but you see Christ reigning on his throne as nothing other than a placeholder for a future Jewish temple. This unbiblical view will cause and has historically caused Christians in the church to lie back, remain unengaged, and to treat the building of their vocations, their families, their stock portfolios as more important than the building of Jesus's kingdom. Why? Because the era we live in is just an asterisk. The era that we live in is not significant. We are waiting on Israel to repent. And until then, as many Gentiles as can come in, can come in. Once you're saved, go on about your life. This fragmented approach to history and prophecy paints a demoralizing picture of a world that is spiraling into more profound 
evil and a church that is destined for abject failure. What a winning narrative. This theological system is a worldview where despair overshadows hope and inaction trumps the gospel. This segmentation also risks detaching believers from a sense of God's continuous and unified plan of history, leading to a compartmentalized faith that fails to recognize the overarching narrative of redemption. Welcome to the modern American church. It's like viewing a mosaic where every piece is isolated. Dispensationalism loses sight of the complete covenant picture of God's redemptive work, and it leaves people disoriented and paralyzed. When the church adopts that sort of foolish thinking about Jesus's bride, the nation state of Israel, we begin to see the church age as nothing more than God's plan B, an accommodation because Israel decided to reject him. Instead of seeing the church as the radiant bride of Christ, we begin viewing her as the rebound Jesus chose to make Judah jealous. What a silly and shallow perversion of the true gospel story that narrative is. And when the church adopts that kind of stupidity and pessimism that's rampant in dispensationalism, we also begin to see the world not as a field that's ripe for the harvest, but as a sinking ship that is destined for destruction. This belief in the church's imminent failure and imminent rapture instills a sense of futility and defeatism among Christians. It anticipates a decline in the church's influence and a rise in global evil, which demoralizes believers. And it dampens their zeal for mission. Because honestly, who wants to work on a losing team? Who wants to put all their energy and effort into a failed project? By focusing on futurism, the tribulation, rapture, nanobots, and all of that, our focus has been shifted away from the apparent responsibilities that Jesus has given us, like discipling the world and that, and onto a strange, unclear, and esoteric future. Instead of being warriors for Christ, we've become closet weirdos with tinfoil hats who suspect every world leader is a new candidate for the Antichrist. This sinful preoccupation leads us to neglect true evangelism, the long, hard work of discipleship, and being engaged in culture as salt and light that Jesus commanded. By focusing on a rigid hyper-literalism, many turn the hope-filled genre of apocalyptic literature, such as the book of Revelation, into a cheap knockoff of the Hunger Games, and then wonder why we produce such second-rate dystopian Christian media. This perspective risks overshadowing the gospel's transformative power and the hope that can be found in Christ and Christ alone. Can you see why the church has actually become so paralyzed under the system of thinking? Is it starting to make sense? Dispensationalism does not lead us to clarity. It leads us to confusion. We are under the spell of that heathen and I believe demonic system, and we will not see the church in the same way that scripture depicts her until we give up that view. We will miss the critical role that the church is meant to play in the world and among the nations, and we will attribute a mystical status to Israel, treating that godless and secular state. Yes, it is a godless state. It is a secular state. It is not a biblical state, and we're going to treat it like a good luck charm so that God will bless us if we bless them. God will care for us if we side with them. Those kind of blind allegiances cause us to be blind in our treaties that we make with foreign nations. 
I'm not saying that we shouldn't be a partner with Israel. I'm just saying that they're not a good luck charm and they're not God's unique covenantal people. The church is the Israel of God. Having this point of view will cause us to miss the point of what world history is. History is not moving toward a reinvigorated mosaic temple. It is actually coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ so that all of his blessings will cover the entire earth as the water covers the sea. There's going to be more to come on that. But for now, let's conclude our time. Defeating defeatism. I want to thank you so much for listening to another episode of the podcast where we're reclaiming a biblical view of optimism, defeating eschatological defeatism, and working towards a practical postmillennialism where we're going to see how Jesus's ongoing victory applies to every facet of our lives. Today, we expose dispensationalism for just some of its hyper-pessimism and addiction to isolationism and defeatism. But as we draw this episode to a close, our mission is far from over. As we move forward, we've got to remember that our fight against defeatism isn't about dismantling a quirky or flawed theology, but it's about reigniting biblical hope and reinvigorating the kind of optimism that pervades every single book of the Bible and foretells of a world that is entirely under the dominion and authority of Jesus. We have to reclaim that. We don't need to be raptured out of this world for that to happen. This is going to happen in this world, one converted sinner, one discipled saint at a time until Jesus returns to a Christian world. That optimism, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, is robustly biblical. It's inherent in the gospel of Christ. And we're going to learn that the Bible doesn't paint a picture of a defeated church and, and a future Israel. It, it portrays a triumphant Israel of God-like bride, confidently advancing the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to her king and her bridegroom. Our task is to reclaim this biblical vision in order to see the church as Christ sees her, vibrant, victorious, and vigorously engaged in transforming the world that he has given her. As Eve was meant to make Adam's garden beautiful, the church, the bride of Christ, is meant to transform this world according to his vision. And in the upcoming episodes, we're going to delve deeper into that biblical case for optimism. We're going to explore how the scriptures affirm a victorious future for Christ's kingdom. We're going to dissect how this optimism should reshape our understanding of our roles as men and women in the church, as in our families, in our communities. And we're going to challenge ourselves to envision how our vocations, our parenting, and even our daily interactions can be part of advancing Christ's victory to the ends of the earth. Our goal is clear. Our goal is to awaken the church from the slumber of defeatism. My goal is to inspire you out of the discouragement and the lethargy and into passionately engaging in the mission of Jesus that Jesus has entrusted to us. It is time, my friends, to discard the chains of pessimism and embrace the empowering truth that we are part of the winning team. We are not called to retreat, but to advance, not to cower in fear, but to conquer in faith. We, as we conclude this episode. Let's commit to coming back here next week with hearts ready to learn, spirits eager to be uplifted, minds open to being transformed, and let us join hands in the building of Jesus's kingdom today to the ends of the earth, to the end of time, and being the salt and light that are that desperately need, that it's desperately needed in a decaying world. And I'll see you back again next week. We continue to prod God's sheep and beat back wolves like dispensationalism. Until next time, 
God richly bless you.